If you travel, you know how to really go off the grid. Like no cell service in your room, off the grid. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, sound baths, and ice baths. Because when you set up your out-of-office, you mean it. Because when you're the escape artist, vacation is all about resting, meditating, drinking water, and minding your own businessing. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. Birmingham, Alabama was the center of the civil rights movement. But a little-known fact about this town is that one of the most popular upscale places for African-American travelers to stay during segregation is right here, the A.G. Gaston Motel. This hotel is one of the many locations across America that's being restored to preserve the history that took place there. I wanted to understand how these restoration efforts were undertaken and ultimately achieved. How did these communities come together to save these once vital places? This is Driving the Green Book from Macmillan Podcast, and I'm your host, Alvin Hall. While my producer, Janae Woods Weber, and I were in Birmingham, we had to stop by the motel to see it for ourselves. The two-story building with open walkways was undergoing renovation in phases, and it's pretty much a construction site. At the original covered entrance, there was a wire fence and scaffolding covering areas that were being repaired. Nonetheless, we were able to stand in the courtyard and talk to the city's director of cultural preservation, Denise Gilmore. This is truly an honor. This is a place that I have known about for years. When people would come to Birmingham, when I was growing up in the 50s, people would talk about the Gaston Motel, the Gaston Motel. And to finally see it is amazing. I had no idea it was such an intimate scale. It absolutely is. Uh, And if you think about what uh, A.G. Gaston used as a model for constructing this motel, at the time when this was built in the early 50s, The Holiday Inns were the gold standard for lodging. And so he looked at all the different motels and he decided that he was going to build this motel even more luxurious than any Holiday Inn because he believed that Black people had a right to first-class accommodations as they traveled through the segregated South. And so this became the gathering place for the community. African-American travelers wanted comfortable, safe places to stay that offered high-end amenities and services. So it's not surprising that a facility like this became the gathering place for travelers as well as local citizens. The A.G. Gaston was considered among the top-tier lodgings in America. It had a stellar reputation among entertainers, politicians, vacationers, and everyday people coming through Birmingham. First of all, let me say, it is, I consider it an honor and a privilege and actually not even work, but a calling to think that I have an opportunity to help preserve this site 
not only for future generations, but for those of us right now to be able to understand their history and their heritage. So it is a calling and a privilege. When I set foot in here, every time I come in here, I just get chills just knowing what took place here and the importance of this story and this legacy that it must be told. It must not be forgotten. Why is this historical site being preserved now? So the motel literally has sat empty for 17 years. And the city acquired the property after it closed as a motel, open to travelers. Uh, Mr. Gaston converted it to senior housing and to senior residence. And that was, again, to keep it occupied, to try to keep revenue coming in, because he still was a very good businessman. And so part of what you see in, on this site is us restoring it back to the way it was. When he converted it to senior residences, they changed the rooms. They put in smaller rooms. They combined rooms so that they could be larger to accommodate more how people lived in the mid-80s, yes. right? So not even to think about today, the space <laughs> that would be required. There had been a number of ideas about how to preserve the motel and a number of RFPs that the city administrations down through the years had considered. And at one point, one of the ideas was to tear down part of the motel and build a kind of a freedom center, a freedom tower. And of course, the entire site is significant, but because of allies from um, local allies in the city, city government, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, National Park Service, Congresswoman Terry Sewell. There's a long list of people whose names could be called on the roll. So I would just say it was truly a collaborative effort to get this site saved because it had been sitting here empty for about 17 years. And so I guess you could say our hero to the rescue <laughs> is that on January the 12th, 2017, President Barack Obama signed a declaration making this site a national monument. Uh, uh, One so week wonderful. before he left office, but just in time. So because of that, in 2017, that's the arrangement that brought the National Park Service and the city of Birmingham together. And so the Gaston Motel sits as the historic centerpiece of the Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument. Also included in that is 16th Street Baptist Church, St. Paul United Methodist Church, the historic Bethel Baptist Church, Kelly Ingram Park, the Colored Masonic Temple, and then um, also the Fourth Avenue Business District and the Civil Rights Institute as supporters of the National Monument. The A.G. Gaston Motel is also a historically important place where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gathered with local organizers, including Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. In fact, Room 30 became known as the War Room because that's where the group strategized about civil rights campaigns. The War Room is the room, if you look just up on the second floor balcony in the corner, Room 30 was indeed the War Room. But let's expand the narrative. It was not only Dr. King. You can't talk about the civil rights movement in Birmingham without talking about Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, mm -hmm. because he's actually the one who began what we know now as the modern day civil rights movement. 
Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth was organizing and protesting in the late 40s and early 50s. And actually, Dr. King was invited once he became the pastor at uh, Dexter in Montgomery. They invited him to come up and to join uh, their joint forces. So it was Dr. King, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, Reverend A.D. King, and other local pastors and civil rights leaders all met in that room. They strategized, they organized the 1963 campaign called Project C so that Black people could protest for their civil rights. And as you well know, that campaign led to those images that were seen around the world in Kelly Ingram Park of the fire hoses and the dogs being set upon these pretty innocent little children marching in their Sunday best for their civil rights. During the civil rights era, Birmingham was nicknamed Bombingham because of the type of terrorist attacks that occurred in the city. The bombing that horrified America the most was at the 16th Street Baptist Church, in which four little girls were killed. They say to us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderers. There were also many other bombings of African-American private homes and institutions, including at the A.G. Gadsden Motel in 1963. So this motel was bombed because it was the place where the civil rights leaders gathered, where people came and they stood in this courtyard. You may have seen the photos of the crowd in the courtyard looking up and Dr. King looking out over the balcony and like just standing here knowing that we're on sacred ground right now. Always, it just gives me chills, even though it must be, what, 100 degrees right now <laughs> exactly. here in the shade. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. But I, when I look up there, I can see uh, Dr. King standing at that balcony, looking out and addressing the supporters that had been gathered. So this place was bombed because it was a central point and a central gathering point for people to come and get marching orders. The civil rights leaders strategized, they planned, and then they would come out and then they would let them know what to do next. So this was the place to get the marching orders and then to carry out the movement. And at the same time, it was functioning as a motel for people driving through Birmingham, entertainers coming to Birmingham. Absolutely. Anybody who was anybody traveling through the segregated South would have stayed at the Gaston Motel. Now, old timers tell the story about the supper club and it was a lounge and the parties and hanging out. <laughs> In fact, they, they tell me their stories they can't tell me, but exactly. that they assured me they had a good time. I was uh, had the opportunity to visit with one of A.G. Gaston's granddaughter, and she was sharing with me stories of, about the restaurant and that because he loved a thick ribeye steak, that they had the best steaks, that they were better than any Delmonico steak. They also shared that you would come to the supper club and restaurant for the best lemon pie. Ooh. And so, I mean, I'm just imagining that 
Uh, when we finish the restoration, which is currently underway now, as you can see the scaffolding and you can see some of the historic uh, treatments that we've done, uh, mock-ups that tells us what it looked like in its period of historic significance. But our intent is to open the restaurant again. And I certainly want to have some of the same things that were on that menu. Rib oh my steak. God, and lemon pie <laughs> and all the other good things that they had. So we're really looking forward to uh, the restoration being completed. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Cultural sites like the A.G. Gaston and other historic locations featured in the Green Book are being restored in cities across America. While driving the Green Book, Janae and I saw this happening in Cincinnati. We saw it happening in Louisville, Nashville, and New Orleans, where significant sections of historically black neighborhoods still stand, where local officials, citizens, and activists understand the importance of preserving often overlooked parts of that city's history. We met activist Joyce Coleman and her friend Carl Westmoreland in Cincinnati, who offered us an example of what's been happening in their city. And then the Colored Women's Club was right next door. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And it is a certified 1840s mansion. Mm-hmm. That thing is about a quarter of a block. And these black women have owned it for over 150 years. Does it still exist? It's it there. still exists, yeah. As we speak. In the process. And it's not falling down either. They're going through. They're doing a fundraiser. It's not on the register. Somebody there did not know. For a historic building, there are certain things that you cannot change. They changed the roof because it had a slate roof, and they had the slate roof taken off, so it's not on the historic register. But there's a movement at hand to get it back on the historic register. So they're in the process of doing, they're the 10 good men or something like that. The 10 good men are kind of, they have a breakfast there once a week as a fundraiser and other activities that are going on there. Do people in the community have a have a memory of the history of this building, of the Club for Colored Women? If I tell them. <laughs> it, 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 it was almost lost. Mm-hmm. But because of people like Joyce and, and a woman uh, that... I've known for years, Carol Braddock, these three or four, half dozen at the most women have made us remember 
And they would start holding meetings and bringing people in from the community in terms of, you know, how can we restore this and restore it so that it's like it was um, when we went there and like, oh my goodness, chandeliers and oh yeah, uh, it was just gorgeous. It's clear that a lot of the push for preservation is driven by emotion, a sense of legacy, and the desire to save history. But there are also practical elements involved in making this happen. The primary one is, how do you raise the money needed to realize these projects? Jesse Turner Jr., a second-generation banker at the Tri-State Bank of Memphis, talked to us about the community's vision and coordinated efforts in the early 80s to save the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Business people couldn't get loans from white banks so easily. People no. couldn't get mortgages. So the community literally banded together to, to support this idea. Right, it did. And one of the things they did, they never owned more than 10 or 12% of the stock. And they were the largest single shareholder. And so the ownership of the bank was spread out. And it's still spread out. There's no one or two groups that own 30, 40% of the bank. It's truly a community-owned bank. How did the bank become associated with the Lorraine Motel? During that time, from what I understand, there was a movement uh, that came together with some citizens. Charles Scruggs, I think, was one of the early supporters, uh, who was a longtime radio personality and ultimately manager of uh, WDI Radio. And it's like, well, this is where Dr. King got killed and no one had done anything to preserve the site. So I think Scruggs basically got together several people, and they formed a foundation to try to save the, the Lorraine. And they raised a little money, but they couldn't raise very much. Yes. And from what I understand, the owner decided that he couldn't keep it. It was to be sold at auction. And so the community rallied with this group of citizens trying to raise enough money to save it from foreclosure. And I think they found someone who apparently was going to buy it, but the person was not going to bid more than 144000 for it. Yes. So they figured, okay, if this is the only person bidding, we've got to get 144 or we lose it to him. Yes. So that was their goal. And from what I understand, the bank, of course, my father and others in the, uh, connected with the bank were connected with this group. He did the accounting for them. Mm -hmm. They went out and tried to raise money, and they raised some of it from the local union, uh, AFSCME, uh, some of it from uh, actually a white business person who sold cosmetics, uh, Lucky Heart Cosmetics, and, uh, but they were short. And so from what I understand, the bank decided to look at making them a loan. And of co according to uh, what I read, some yes. of what I've been told, the bank went to the auction, and my father had gotten approval from the um, board, I'm sure, to lend them the money. And it turned out they had $90,000, or I think it might have been really closer to eighty. How are they going to get the other $60,000 to close this gap? Doing so requires three things. An unshakable belief in the project, the ability to convince others of the value of the project, and connections to people with money willing to act as guarantors. They couldn't close the deal because they didn't have the rest of the money. So he basically offered to 
put the remaining money. He said, the bank will lend the 60000 if we can get some help. Uh, A.W. Willis, who was connected with the Universal Life Insurance Company and a civil rights attorney in his own right, he got asked me to, to guarantee part of it. And he got um, another entity to guarantee the rest. He said he would lend them $50,000 on a handshake if they could find an underwriter. And A.W. Willis uh, found Paul Shapiro of Lucky Hearts and um, James Smith of AFSCME, who each agreed to guarantee $25,000 each. And the bank basically made the loan with them saying, we'll, we'll get our organizations to guarantee it. And, of course, the bank had faith in the project. And so he made the loan. My father is a member of a community that his father was a Baptist minister. And he has learned, had learned over the years, as I think the business folks in the community who were supportive, that you can get community involvement, but you have to go out and sell it. But you do a lot of things on faith. And uh, the bank had always had a reputation of trying to make loans that others would not make. And it did so at the time and actually continues to do so now. As the bank had faith in the project, so did the local black church. It acted on its faith in the community, extending its power and influence beyond the pulpit. During the civil rights movement and throughout black American history, the church has embodied a less acknowledged role in marshalling resources like funding to strengthen communities. While everyone may associate this activism with the African-American Baptist and Methodist churches, some of the less widely known socially and politically proactive black denominations include the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AMEZ, the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, and the CME, the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. Jesse told me about a striking example of the way his bank and a church worked together. There was a college founded by the CME Church in Tyler, Texas, that was struggling to maintain its enrollment. It had lost its accreditation. A.W. Willis's son, Archie III, approached Jesse to see if they could formulate a plan to help. Over the course of a year, they were able to get six African-American banks around the country to come together to give the church a $4.5 million loan. The church used the money to save the school. They got its accreditation restored. And student enrollment went from 250 to 1,200 students. And so what happened? Well, the bank converted the faith of the CME Church members into cash. We had the faith that the CME Church would pay. And so we made that loan on the faith of the CME Church. So here's a case of the bank working with the community to save an institution, just like we did with the Lorraine. We've done that with that, and I'm sure with other businesses. So there is a model for saving these types of institutions and uh, I suspect that lending is being done, I'm sure, with black banks all over the country, probably just isn't being documented. (laughs) 
Jesse Turner Jr.'s story reminds me of people who didn't have a green book. What they did have was a community that shared its knowledge and experience. Together, they had faith in each other and helped each other reach the place they wanted to be. That's all for this episode of Driving the Green Book. When we come back next week, we visit historic Black neighborhoods to examine how these once-thriving areas have fared over the decades of urban renewal. Special thanks to Denise Gilmore, Joyce Coleman, and Jesse Turner Jr. Driving the Green Book is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It is created, narrated, and produced by Alvin Hall and edited by Juleka Lantigua-Williams. Sound design and original theme song by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua-Williams & Co. Field production by Oluwakemi Aladesui. Janae Woods-Weber is the associate producer with additional production support by Jasmine Faustino, Michelle Margulis, Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller, and Becky Celestina. Kathy Doyle is the Macmillan Podcast Vice President. Subscribe to Driving the Green Book on Apple Podcasts. While you're listening, you can also explore the road trip locations behind the show using our custom Apple Maps guide. Find a link to this experience, curated music playlists, details about my upcoming book, and more at drivingthegreenbook.com. If you'd like to share your own stories about the Green Book with us, email us at greenbook at macmillan.com. We would love to hear from you. Safe travels. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.